This episode of The Labor of Love is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code REALSIMPLE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. Recently, New York Magazine published a series of articles called True Romance, which they billed as love as it's actually lived. There were terrific first-person accounts ranging from what it's like to date a criminal to planning a wedding in just one week. But the article that I found the most relatable was hilarious and impassioned, and it was by columnist Heather Haverleski. It was entitled, What Romance Really Means After 10 Years of Marriage. In it, Heather writes about how her definition of romance has changed throughout her relationship, why we should tune out society's notions about what love should feel and look like, and how she finds romance in the everyday act of surviving a marriage. Heather Haverleski is New York Magazine's Ask Polly advice columnist and the author of the upcoming book, How to Be a Person in the World. Heather, it's great to have you on The Labor of Love. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Heather, I want to thank you for writing this article because I think that most of the time when we read about or talk about long-term relationships, it's about the drudgery, it's about the sexlessness, it's about how difficult it is to find connection after so many years of living with someone. And your article really spun that on its head, and you were able to, I think, very capably make the argument that those things, maybe not the sexlessness, but other things about being in a long-term relationship are actually quite romantic. Can you sort of distill your argument for the audience? You know, <laughs> it's a complicated thing, but I, my feeling, and my feeling has been for years now, I've been married for almost 10 years. My basic feeling that I've had for a long time is that our culture is sort of obsessed with open-ended questions. It's obsessed with suspense. It's obsessed with sort of like the the thrill of not knowing a lot of the answers yet, not knowing, not kind of, it's, I, I feel like we're, as a culture, we're fixated on discomfort, the discomfort of not being fully accepted, the discomfort of hoping for a person a human manifestation that will magically answer all of your unsolved mysteries and solve all of your problems. And, and the moment, the most important moment is when you look at that person and you say, this is my missing piece. And it all manifests itself in like how hot they are and how much you just want to mash your body up against them. (laughs) And while obviously there is, there's a huge amount of magic wrapped up in that moment. Otherwise, Nicholas Sparks wouldn't have ever sold a single book. Not one. Nonetheless, to me, the thing that I think was unexpected and unexpectedly thrilling even about getting married and being married for a long time. And I I almost feel like I was guided by this when I was single. And I wondered if I was just a crazy person who was fixated on this idea that anyone could have this. But the thing that I love about having been with someone for 10 years is that is it's a very different kind of feeling. It's a feeling that there aren't 
more questions that need to be answered that are not your own personal struggles, you know? It's <laughs> it's like this clarifying thing where if I have a if I have an issue now, it's because it's something that I have to solve. I, I guess what I'm what I'm pointing at is people tend to kind of sum up marriage as this codependent thing, but in for me, a good marriage actually creates a space where not only where you can be a human being who's flawed and and makes mistakes, but where you take responsibility for your own for your own life in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I think you say in the article when you're making that distinction between the romance of dating or falling in love and the romance of marriage that when we're dating, when we're first meeting someone, we're looking for proof and validation from them. We're looking to, you know, we want someone else to say, you're the one that I want, essentially, in all ways. And that when you're in this marriage, you already have that proof. Like, there's something that's already been established. Like, you were chosen. And so maybe that understanding gives you the room to be to be more yourself in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting. It, it sort of is kind of all about knowing that someone is truly committed to you and isn't going anywhere and is sort of happy in your presence, even though you, you know, the, the, <laughs> even though you are flawed and repetitive and disgusting, you know, <laughs> the word disgusting comes up in my mind a lot just because human beings, you know, I mean, it's hard enough to accept your own kind of rank, those (laughs) rank realities of your own body and your own kind of patterns of like weakness. But, but to have another person in your life who you also have to accept all of their like sounds and smells and the way that they move through the world. I mean, it, I'm not making it sound incredibly romantic, but to no, me, it, there's like the, the piece that I wrote is about leaning into that and understanding that, you know, just feeling an immense amount of gratitude for the fact that someone else can tolerate all of your stuff, mm-hmm. you know? I guess I'm making a distinction also between the early years of marriage, which I think can be really difficult and are much more of a testing ground. Like, you're filled more with this feeling like, oh, my God, am I going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life, you know? Um, And then there's this shift where you feel like, wow, like I, I, you know, you accept that you have to deal with little things for the rest of your life, and all of a sudden all the little nagging things kind of fade to the background, and you feel like, oh, I get to have this for the rest of my life. Like, this is great. Now I just need to make sure I don't die anytime soon. I think, though, that you, I would guess, and I don't know empirically, but like, I think you, that's an exceptional way of looking at it. Because I think that more often we hear about people feeling completely victimized by their partner's annoying behaviors and humanness. And I think that you know, we had at last week's podcast was all about like how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. I mean, is it that you it's not that you're saying your husband doesn't irritate you. It's saying that you have a different way of looking at all of those things. I don't think believe me, I don't walk around saying I'm blissfully happy in every way. My husband never gets on my nerves. I'm a pretty flinty person. I can be very sort of uh, thin skinned and just this morning, I said something totally ridiculous. My hu- we just adopted a puppy, and my husband was taking it outside, and he- I was like, "Go outside first, and then call." You know, he just had he'll do things in a way that I'm like, "That's not logical." Uh-huh. Like, it's obviously you have to do it, you know, this way that I do it. So I think that 
it, it's not so much that the, the irritations aren't there or the little annoying things aren't there. It's just that I think sometimes to, in order to feel a lot of gratitude for someone putting up with you, you have to realize just how annoying you are. <laughs> it's sort of like the humbling realization right. that for all of the times that you feel like, good God, you know, <laughs> I have to deal with this forever. There's this other person who does the same, the same thing. thing. And, I, you know, I guess part of it is that my husband does it with more grace than I do, I feel like. He's very accepting and, and kind of gets a kick out of the things that I drive me crazy about myself, for one. I, I, and I don't actually think that this is rare at all. I don't think that it's like there are, you know, three people alive who have marriages where they're focused on how happy they are mm -hmm. and how grateful they are and how long they want it to last. Um, I don't know. My feeling is that a lot of people, based on writing this piece, the people that reached out to me and said, oh, my God, I feel exactly this way, and I don't see these words anywhere. Like, people right. don't. I just think that our, uh, culturally we're fixated on, oh, Jesus, you know, no one's having enough sex, and marriage is a, is a perilous, you know, yeah. never-ending catharsis where people just, you know, are miserable and finally give up. Um, <laughs> or die. It's just a more interesting and funny and terrible and misery loves company kind of story. People yeah. are kind of hesitant to say, I have found a deep peace and calm in, you know, in marriage. I feel truly fulfilled when I remind myself of what I really want. And I look around and I see that I have exactly what I've always really wanted. I, I mean, for me, and then maybe it's because I'm, you know, 45, my husband's 52, but God, I feel like we don't have enough time left, you know, right. sort of, I mean, maybe that's why, you know, past a certain age, marriage gets better. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> There's a scene in your piece that kind of is an anecdote that sums up a lot of what you're talking about. Can you just tell the listeners about your dysentery? <laughs> So I, I got sick, and I didn't know I was sick until the middle of the night. I got up and went to the bathroom, and I had that terrible feeling that you sometimes have, hopefully rarely in your life, a little bit like you don't – you just feel like your whole body's going to explode. You don't know what you can do to alleviate the situation. I ha also had that feeling like where the, the edges of the frame are getting darker and darker, <laughs> like because you know you're about to pass out. But I, and I should have probably just started crawling or laid down on the floor, but I walked into the bathroom and I didn't make it all the way to the toilet. I think I thought I was going to throw up into the toilet maybe, but I wasn't sure. I passed out over the side of the tub. I cracked uh, one of my ribs. And as I woke up, my husband was pulling me up, and the vision that I had as he was pulling me up off the floor is just, the way I describe it in the piece is, if you allowed Todd Solons to uh, direct an episode of Game of Thrones, that's the closest I can come to, if you can imagine that, that's uh, the closest I can come to distilling that moment. It was just ugly. And my husband, like, <laughs> set me aside, you know, quietly and without complaining handled the situation. Meaning he, like, cleaned you up. Cleaned things. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I remember him kind of chuckling. <laughs> you know, it's like that's all he would allow himself to do. <laughs> and 
You say in the piece that that kind of those kinds of moments where you really are there is nothing more vulnerable than where you were and what was going on. You can't help but think, you know, why why would this person want to be here, you know? But they like show all, up you know, anyway. is this the is this going to be the death of everything? And you know, I, I didn't have that feeling. It was sort of like, well, <laughs> and now here's the, the rest of our lives, you know. I had I just knew that he could handle it and I knew that he wasn't going to complain about it and I knew that he it wasn't going to change anything. He wasn't going to um, look at it. And I know myself and I know that I have that in me too. So it's sort of like this incredible feeling of just trust, mm-hmm. you know? And also trusting that you can be vulnerable and another person will be there for you. I think is just for me that goes to the center of everything. When we come back We'll talk to Heather more about why it's sexy to feel less than totally sexy. But first, as an editor of a website, I spend a lot of time on websites every single day. It's a big part of my day. And I'll tell you, there is a big difference between going to a site that looks clean and bright and fresh and easy to use than there is when you visit one that's cluttered and hard to navigate. Squarespace sites look professionally designed, and regardless of your skill level, there's no coding required. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code REALSIMPLE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Heather, at the end, toward the end of your article, there was a quote that I really liked that I'm going to read back. You say, laughing at how beaten down you sometimes are in your tireless quest to survive is romance. It's sexy to feel less than totally sexy and still feel like you're sexy to one person no matter what. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think, you know, as I said at the beginning, one of the tropes and one of the stereotypes about long-term relationships is how passionless they become. And again, you sort of flip that script in this piece. You know, (laughs) I I feel like, to me, sexiness is honesty. You know, I'm not saying that that is the sum total of sexiness. Other things are sexy, too. Dishonesty (laughs) in how you look can be sexy. I'm not saying I'm immune to, like... um, to the magic of the big screen or, or good looking people covered in fake, you know, things, makeup parts, you know, I'm not immune to anything, but I do feel like, um, for me, what I love about being with my husband and what feels sexy to me is I know that I can look sexier and get his attention, but I also feel like he, sees me clearly and finds me attractive even when, you know, I haven't showered in three days. There's something about that to me that, I mean, because I don't know, sex, actual sex is not an art directed act, you know, it's not, and and making out with someone is not free of ups and downs. And I don't know, in some ways to me, you know, it's like to be truly physically attracted at every level, you have to believe in the person. I don't know. Maybe that's just a very female thing. I'm sure. What do you mean believe in the person? I don't know what you mean. I think that I lose my attraction for someone when I think that either they're deceiving me or they can't handle me at my worst or my most honest or my most vulnerable 
in my most vulnerable moments and and I feel like my attraction is heightened when I just believe that there's goodness and honesty mm-hmm. there and that they see me clearly. You know, personally, I feel like we are swimming through deceit constantly and we deceive each other constantly and there's there's so much kind of artifice required of us in day-to-day life that to have a space in your life where you can just show up in all of your um, raggedness and be embraced. To me, the narrative needs to change around what sexy even is because that is kind of the essence of of being alive, you know? It's something that we lose so often with the rise of social media, with the rise of, you know, everyone on television Mm -hmm. almost across the board. This is changing a tiny bit, but almost everyone is gorgeous. Right. And um, compared to regular people. And we've kind of been trained to see our day-to-day lives as these kind of ugly, this kind of ugly mundane thing that's never quite good enough. So I, I, I feel like there's some something precious about just being met where you are and not having to struggle to maintain some shiny sort of self that's better than better than what you actually have to offer, you know? I think it's also... You know, you mentioned this, but I think it's also increasingly difficult to find that rawness or authenticity anywhere in our lives. I mean, it's certainly not in what we consume, certainly not on social media. We can, if we're lucky, we have friendships that get to that. If we're lucky, literature can make us feel that or other forms of art. But what you're describing, it's like a relic almost. We're we're so inundated with with the notions of who we should be and how we should be that we don't get that except in our deepest relationships. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also think that people are afraid of relationships that will bring them that, you know, people, people want their, their love relationships to be, to stay at this level of like pornography and uh, a rom-com and, you know, a sitcom added up together. Somehow you're going to be really enthrallingly hot and also shiny and perfect and witty. And and I almost feel like friends expect this of each other a little bit more than they used to also, thanks to um, maybe thanks to the fact that we don't get on the phone and have long conversations as often. There's a lot of texting and emailing and just let's set it up and then we'll get together. And then but there's not enough of that, in my opinion, and I think that, you know, it's hard not to turn to your to your husband for a lot of the kind of nurturing that you require, you know, at the end of the day. Right. And um, it also puts a ton of pressure on the relationship. I mean, I think that's the flip side. And I've talked to, you know, historians of marriage and, and people who study marriage who talk about, you know, this is the first time in history where what we expect from our life partner is so outsized and so you know, comprehensive. We need them to be our best friend. We need them to be our, you know, sexually fulfilling partners. We need them to help us raise children. We need them to be all of these things that, you know, 50 years ago, 25 years ago, 100 years ago was not what we sought in our partners. So it's it's also a lot of pressure. I absolutely agree with that. I think that, you know, it's so true. I find for me, there are times when I expect my husband to do exactly half of all the things that we share and don't want to each do separately. Like, for example, the dishes, like 
hitch if it's his day to take the kids to school, then I also want him to get the dishes done because I do that on my days. You know, we split the week in half. And there are times when I think like, okay, but he lives, a, you know, he has a job across town. He goes three days a week. He's a professor, luckily, so he's here two days a week. But when I get into the nitty gritty of like everything should be exactly half and he also has to supply all of this kind of like therapy for me and organize, you know, and I need to be able to talk about my job when it gets hectic and crazy. I think it's worked really well for my husband and I because we're certain kinds of people. But when you do that too much, you do kind of have to say, okay, do I need this from him? I actually just an hour ago called a friend of mine and said, can we meet tonight and talk about this big work challenge I have that has a lot of moving parts? Because I know that I cannot force my husband to talk this through with me. It's going to probably take two hours to talk about. Right. And luckily, my friend is unemployed and said, sure, (laughs) I'll do that. I think that it's wise for people to look closely at what they, you know, who are you with and what can what can this person manage? And where do you really need? Do you really need to get all of that? You know, sometimes with parenting things, even with like, um, a mom at the school is pissing me off levels of things. <laughs> that kind of thing I find is particularly like w- wearisome yeah. to a man. I think the best case scenario, though, is that you're, you know, in a perfect world, your partner can tolerate, you know, your annoying tics, whether they're, you know, physical or emotional. And in a perfect world, you give back, you know, in spite of the fact that, their little ticks chafe you too. It all of this stuff kind of points back to like the importance of a um, of the spirit of generosity in a relationship, right? Because if you're giving a lot without necessarily expecting the other person to be able to give back the exact equal same volume of stuff, you just create like a feeling that you know you don't want that feeling like you know what, I'm not getting enough here, and I'm just going to have to point that out to you over and over again. It's sort of more like you give a little too much, and then you get a little more than you expected. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the ideal, you know? So I want to shift gears for a second, and I have just one more question before we, we wrap up. My question is, as an advice columnist, you're frequently asked questions about people's love lives and their romantic lives and their sexual lives. And I'm wondering how much you draw on your own relationship when you're helping people figure out theirs. I definitely draw on my relationship a lot, both the good things about it and the frustrating things about it. My, my columns are, include one letter and then, you know, 1,500 to 2,000-word response. Mm-hmm. It's a long advice column. It's not just, you know tell your mother-in-law to leave you alone. (laughs) It sort of like gets into the, you know, different levels of thinking about it and should you try this or that. And it's pretty long-winded like I am. But it's also, I mean, I, I try to come from a very humble place where the kinds of letters that appeal to me are often letters that have, there's some aspect of them that is, it's a, there's a puzzle there that I can relate to. So I tend to look at my both like the things that are working for me in my life and also the things that I'm just failing at again and again and again, because exploring those kinds of things 
helps me to solve my own <laughs> relationship problems. If I thought my marriage was absolutely perfect and didn't have room to grow, I would be a terrible advice columnist. Like I don't, there, it's always a work in progress. But I do think that it's a model of acceptance, you know, mutual acceptance and self-acceptance. I mean, if there's one thing that my husband and I are not necessarily failing at at this at this particular moment, it's like accepting each other and accepting ourselves. You know, it's taken years and years to do that, though. I feel like it's it's kind of like I feel like it was this, at the center of our work, each of us. Like it was something that we each needed to do on our own, and we've managed to do it both separately and together, and it's just kind of transformed a lot of things in our lives. Heather, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you have a domestic quandary and would like to be a guest on our show, or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Zach Dinerstein. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Mm-hmm.